I'm your host, Lauren Pespiza. I'm doing my best to drag myself in today. I'm sitting here with... Evan George. Hello, hello. Hey, how's it going? You forgot to say we're in the market basket. We're in the market basket. They pay us a lot of money to do that quick little plug. In Somerville. Hey, market basket. Notice us. Um, so, I don't see the video yet, but I feel like I need to explain a few things before we get started in case you guys can see the video. I was going to say, the story is going to definitely need a visual component. I know. That's okay. For the people who will listen to this later, Lauren took one on the chin this weekend for the team. For the cause. <laughs> and now I'm looking at my producer, and I'm, I'm thinking he, re he named it the thing he wasn't supposed to. But I'm not sure. No, I mean, okay. Okay. <laughs> Are we live now? Are we live now? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yeah. Okay, now I see it. All right, invite me to the party. Come, come I'm on. I'm trying. I'm trying. I don't see it. Thought Herbert just taking out his Angamore on us. Put it with a bunch of curse words. Just doom the show. Enter his dark spiral. Herb had a bad weekend, everyone. But it's all right. We're going to send him positive vibes. Yeah. We all kind of had a rough weekend. I had a great weekend. Evan had a great weekend. <laughs> I always have a great weekend. My Thursday to Sunday, I went hard. Starting with a Thursday night party here. For some reason, got very drunk by myself Friday night. Oh, uh, no! I enjoy those. Okay, <laughs> those are my little excursions. Yeah, I also was at a pretty amazing party. Uh, it's the same party. Coincidentally, it's not like I invited Evan or anything. Um, here in the market basket, uh, we raged um, and raved and had a grand old time with our friends from the New Alliance community. Shout mm -hmm. out to them. Uh, I'm very sorry I didn't bring any alcohol. I promise next time I will provide. But thank you to everyone who let me steal your beers. Yeah, there was a lot of there's a lot of beer going around, a lot of sharing, a lot of caring, a lot of old friends and new friends. Um, we saw we saw city council candidates getting down like uh, like you haven't seen before. Yeah, but we're not, we can't reveal who they were. Right, just, undisclosed city yep. council candidates. Partying. Just like uh, Pete Buttigieg, we're all under non disclosure agreement, so we can't talk about it. Oh, I didn't sign anything. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> did you invite me to the party? Come on. Um, there we go. All right, I'm inviting. I'm inviting. Okay, sorry for the delay, everyone. I still haven't worked out what to look at when we start. Um, there we go. I mean, if the Boston elections team went a little bit slower, we almost didn't have a show tonight. Yeah, right. Thank God. All right, I'm sharing it. Let's get this started. All right. Anyway, I'm about to tell a story. Sorry for the delay. All right. Can everybody see? Let's see if you guys can see what happened to me this weekend. So here's a uh, public service announcement. Um, watch out for black ice, people, because I did a serious face plant Saturday night and uh, really messed up my chin. Get a nice close-up <laughs> angle of that. Um, Evan was there to witness it. I was. I fell up a hill. And I'm really sorry I didn't catch you in time. I was just too focused on the great story you were telling. <laughs> I was literally saying, uh, I was saying, I was saying the long arc of history curves towards boom, and then I face planted into the sidewalk. So apparently, uh, in my world, the long arc of history curves towards the sidewalk. Um, you could call that justice. You could call that street justice. But. Uh, when the roads rise up to meet you, friends, just make sure it's not the sidewalk sneaking up to smack you in the face. Um, 
But yeah, you, now that's out of way. Nobody you, beat me. I beat myself. You handled it like a champ, though. I think I was laughing the whole time. I was just happy I didn't break a tooth. You were um, convinced you did, though. Yeah. You, you thought for a while. Yeah. Uh, nothing hurts, like, in my mouth right now, so I guess that's... <laughs> That means I'm fine. That's a win. Yeah, so it's been that kind of weekend, you know. Yeah. I, I I had a pretty pretty nasty cold. Um, I've been chugging that that orange cough syrup stuff, and uh, that probably had something to do with why I fell into the sidewalk that night. Um, definitely didn't have any other liquids or substances, so it had to have been the cough syrup. Yeah, well, I definitely didn't do anything illegal, but I am allowed to have beer, and apparently you shouldn't drink beer and cough syrup at the same time. Yeah, that's on the label. I told you to read it, but you said no. I'll be fine. It's just beer. But either way, we laughed it off. It was fine. Um, went back and uh, enjoyed our weekend. Uh, or at least you did. Um, I worked. And then we got a lot to talk about today, though. Um, there's been a bunch of breaking news, a bunch of developing stories from friends, family, countrymen, comrades, and... Um, we also have some like renters issues to talk about again, which is nice. We're kind of going back to our roots here, but uh, we're going to talk about what is it? Redlining. Lots of redlining Lots of today. Redlining and then today. I wasn't going to touch this, but it just flowed so great. We're going to talk about redlining. We're going to talk about first in Boston. Then you zoom out a little bit because this all comes from federal policies. But then we're going to go right back to Charlie Baker, Massachusetts, and how it all ties <laughs> together. But before we pitch to that, do we? 30 second update on the Boston City Council election. Yes, right. Like maybe like an hour before uh, we got here, we got the news that uh, there has the recount as over for Boston City Council at large seat number four. And uh, Julia Mejia has been declared the winner by one vote. Every door mm. counts. Every vote counts. So they had to conduct a hand recount of volunteers over three days or was it four? Looking at my producer now. Herb, was it three days or four? Well, uh, actually, the process started on Thursday, where we um, they counted the, the the ballots in every single uh, warrant precinct, made sure that the the count was accurate on the amount of ballots that we were holding, and then the actual uh, tallying up started on Saturday. So they um, had to hand count just to make sure, like like they had enough cards in the deck that that number matched. Yep, yep. They they had. Oh, a, I didn't they, know that. Yep, yep. The first step is counting every single ballot. Uh, and then uh, on Saturday, they started tallying up the actual votes, uh, warp uh, by warp, precinct by precinct. Wow. And now, so I think the end of the actual election, Julia was up by eight. They then counted all the absentee ballots and all of that stuff. And then her lead dropped to five. And what was the final, according to today, Lauren? Uh, it was one vote. That is insane. One vote made the difference between uh, Julia and Alejandra St. Gillian. And um, I, I mean, I, so my ward is Ward 22. It's the last ward counted. Oh, nice. I'm a yeah. Ward 13. Yeah, yeah. So I was like really, really for a minute. I had forgotten I'd voted for both of them. And I was like, that was my vote. That was my vote. But it wasn't me. It wasn't my vote that counted. I mean. Counted kind of big. It kind of did, yeah. It got well, it got us to this point, but there's somebody out there in my neighborhood that voted for Julia and not Alejandra, and I, I want to shake their hand because uh, Julia's been a great friend to other podcasts that I've been on, um, friends with a lot of my other activist friends, and we love her. So we're happy for her, and we just really hope that this sticks and nobody has to go through this anymore and that we can get an amazing progressive woman on city council to help the team out. 
And I'll say two things on it. One, let's hope it is over and this doesn't get drawn out to the courts, which may or may not happen. But the second thing is Alejandra is would have been a great city council member. I knocked doors for her. She was endorsed by many of the same um, activist groups and organizing groups throughout Boston that uh, also endorsed Julia. So she's a great candidate as well. And again, this came down to one person's preference. <laughs> and every canvasser is now going to try to take credit because I also I dropped lit the night before for Julia in Austin Brighton. I dropped 200 pamphlets. That's at least six votes. Right. So. But every canvas is going to say that same thing. Yeah. I just think, I just know there's one person out there who voted for Julia and Althea Garrison. Nice. And thank you. Hey, you know what? <laughs> People vote for some funny, funny, funny reasons. But okay, that's where it is now. I yeah. think we're going to have, a, are we allowed to say who our special guest is for next week? Um, yeah, we can announce it. Um, what of our, speaking of Alston Brighton and War 22, uh, special guest, uh, Lee Nave Jr., uh, it's going to be on next week talking about some renters' issues and tenant protections, our favorite topic. And I'm going to make him talk about what was it like being a candidate for the first time, his thoughts on the future of the Boston City Council. He can talk about whatever he wants, really. He can. And, well, he will be. He's accepted a job with Liz Brayden. That's uh, right. Yep, he's going to be her <laughs> policy advisor for Alston Brighton. So we're definitely going to talk around strict policy for AB because Harvard's going after that land hard. And I have some thoughts about it. Yeah, I'm sure hopefully they do too, and hopefully we all align. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to talk about a few other issues tonight too, actually. Uh, speaking of um, other topics, I do uh, want to be another friend of the show. Rod Weber had some breaking news this weekend and some crazy shenanigans uh, that we would love to get into and discuss um, if he's watching. Probably call in later. We're also going to talk about a major win well, it's not really. It's actually a pretty minor win um, in terms of WEMF and uh, the decision on making that building a landmark um, in Cambridge. That's, as a lot of you may know, where I come from, where we come from. It was our old home, and uh, it's one of the reasons I hate developers now. So we can talk about that, too. But let's get started with this redlining, because that's what's headlining. Ooh. Ooh. Anyway, now, how long did you actually have that written down? Uh, yeah. Was it that good? Yeah. No, that, that was pretty oh, good. Thanks. That was yeah. that, that was pre-planned, but that's okay. I'll, I'll give it to you for spontaneity. All right, we're going to discuss redlining now, especially in Boston. So the reason for this is there is an exhibit, actually. I think it's by the Sam Adams and JP, uh, the brewery, and it's put on by our uh, partners in crime, City Life, and it's just an exhibit about redlining in Boston. And I'm going to let the first video tee it up a little bit, and then Lauren and I will kind of clean it up. So the first, this is taken from an interview, and I'm always trying to cite the people I steal from, WGBH, uh, concerning the exhibit for redlining in Boston. Uh, Herb, do we have clip number one ready? All right, let's kick it off. ...produced this exhibit on the history of how neighborhoods like Roxbury were redlined. In the 1930s, the federal government created color-coded maps. They were a guideline for banks. Blue and green meant a neighborhood was a safe place for banks to back loans. Red was high risk, something determined largely by who lived there. In the survey, you have the word Negro asking, what is the percentage of Negroes that live in this area? Foreign-born residents, Irish, Italians, Jews, also reduced a neighborhood's value. 
But after World War II, their status changed and they joined an exodus from the city to the suburbs where home ownership helped create the country's middle class. Meanwhile, federal guidelines continued to promote racial segregation. If a neighborhood is to retain stability, it is necessary that property shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. These policies, she says, not just in Boston, but urban centers nationwide, not of the white or Caucasian race, answer a question that resonates today. Why are we in a hyper-segregated America? Redlining, she says, not only excluded people from owning and potentially profiting from a home, but confined them to areas of concentrated poverty and little investment. Until recently. As you see, there's tons of development happening all around here. Alex Ponte Capellan is a housing rights organizer. He grew up here in Jamaica Plains, Eggleston Square, a once redline neighborhood where more than a third of the residents make less than $25,000 a year. This building here um, rents are going to look like $4,000 to $5,000 even for a three-bedroom. And so for the people who've lived here for generations, by and large... Okay, I wanted people to hear how much the rent for some places in JP are going to be. I forgot I purposely left that go a little bit. Four to $5,000 for a two-bedroom. But just to recap that, so redlining was exactly as it sounds, 1930s, the federal government decided to tell banks that they will insure mortgages if people default on their mortgages, but they're only going to insure them in certain zones. And the way they'd established what zones would they insure and which zones that they say they wouldn't, was they asked how many black people are in your neighborhood. And then if you had a certain amount of black people, they drew with literally a red marker, making a little box and say, okay, see that area? You can't um, back any of the mortgages there. And this explains why almost every well, every uh, city in the United States, every major city in the United States is racially segregated almost by default lines. I dropped the map in the chat. So if you're listening right now on podcast, you can start watching us live so that you can follow along with the goodies. But do you see like the parts of Boston? So the n- largest area, which I didn't know that was redlined, was Roxbury. Oh, I mean, that makes sense. I'm sorry. Herb was communicating to me. But no, there we go. And then um, actually where I live uh, right now in Dorchester, but something else they said that I want to highlight before we go to clip number two is Italians, Jews, Irish, they were also kept out of this. They were yellow. So they weren't redlined. I've never heard the term yellow-lined. Yeah. But- There's no yellow line. Yeah, well, you, there are yellow sharpies and markers. Yeah. All right, but anyway, so and that was true from 1930 to about World War II, so about a decade, and then after World War II, they decided, okay, yep, we're gonna expand it. You're white, you can get all the benefits of the GI Bill, you can get all the benefits of the new society. Right. So, um, but African Americans were still blocked out of that for decades longer. But this is actually only one little part of it. So I want to go check out the exhibit because as clip number two, I think, is going to explain, redlining was actually like the smallest part of what really kept out black home ownership. Housing segregation. The second major one was the Federal Housing Administration, which was established in 1934, the year after the Public Works Administration. And the Federal Housing Administration is well known today by many people as uh, an agency that would not insure uh, mortgages for African Americans at redline communities. That was a minor part of what the federal government, what the FHA did in order to segregate metropolitan areas. The most important role of the Federal Housing Administration was it subsidized mass production builders of entire subdivisions, entire suburbs. And it did so with a requirement that no homes be sold to African Americans 
and that every home in these subdivisions uh, had a clause in the deed that prohibited resale to African Americans. So these two programs combined uh, worked to segregate metropolitan areas in a way that they otherwise would not have been segregated. The public housing program separated African Americans from integrated neighborhoods. The Federal Housing Administration then subsidized white families to move out of urban areas into suburbs, all white suburbs, uh, where African Americans were prohibited from following. And in what sense were African Americans prohibited from following whites into the suburbs? They were prohibited because the developers of these suburbs got bank loans on condition that they sell no homes to African Americans. It was a federal requirement that they get these bank loans only on condition that they not sell to African Americans. And uh, the Federal Housing Administration required that deeds in these homes have what we now refer to as restrictive covenants, prohibitions on resale to uh, African Americans. This was not a, an implicit program. It was not something that was uh, hidden. Okay, so we have the redlining. But the second thing that we were just talking about, which I think maybe I knew in the back of my mind, but didn't really fully get it until I re-listened to this interview, and I'm going to get you the author's name. I think it's called The Color Line. Uh, I read it like two years ago. Actually, it probably didn't even come out two years ago, so people now know I'm lying. I read it last year. And what he was just explaining was after World War II, so all of those like Irish and Italian and Jewish families that we were talking about who were formerly yellow-lined throughout Boston, well, they were now given money to just get cheap homes in the suburbs. African-Americans were not at all allowed to do this. If you were a single mother, to be honest, you wouldn't have been able to get the credit to do this either. And then obviously indigenous populations, you can't do this. But then the second part is if you were a white family who then bought a home in a suburb, you were denied by law to then sell that or flip it to an African-American family. And people actually went to jail because they then sold their homes to people of color. That sounds unconstitutional. It's all legal. Well, you know, when I've heard the term covenant before, but I've always heard it to be like describing like, you know, in the suburbs that everyone moved out to. Uh, oh, you can't have a boat in your yard <laughs> like sitting there. You can't like build anything that is considered unsightly for the neighborhood covenant. I didn't know you could have such a racist covenant. You can. And I mean, so like the point you just made, like that's unconstitutional. The 14th Amendment is what dictates basically everything where most of how our modern society is built on, it's on the 14th Amendment. But if you just interpret it a certain way, then sure, you can do whatever you want. So, I mean, now today we say that's unconstitutional. But um, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, up until I think 1968, 1967, this was all fully legal. And we're now going to – I'm trying to bring up that map so my producer can uh, put it in. But as I was just explaining, and he might get this in the clip three. <clears throat> this is all the policy until 1968. And then the federal government said, all right, we're going to get rid of this. This is racist. Lauren's getting upset because it's anti-constitutional. So now everyone's allowed to move to the suburbs. And now in this next clip, he's going to explain how that was a complete false promise and why still today we have such massive disparities where it comes to black homeownership. 1940s and 1950s sold for about twice national median income. They were affordable to working-class families with an FHA or VA mortgage. African-Americans were equally able to afford those homes as whites, but were for, prohibited from buying them. Today, those homes sell for $300,000, $400,000 at, at the minimum. 
six, eight times national median income, those homes are now unaffordable to African Americans. So in 1968, we passed the Fair Housing Act that said, in effect, uh, okay, African Americans, you're now free to buy homes in Daly City or Levittown or any of the other suburbs in between. But it's an empty promise because those homes are no longer affordable to the families that could have afforded them when whites were buying into those suburbs and gaining the, the equity and the wealth that, that followed from that. They sent their children, the white families sent their children to college with their uh, home equities. They were able to take care of their parents in old age and not depend on their children. They're able to bequeath wealth to their children. Uh, none of those advantages accrued to African Americans who, for the most part, were prohibited from uh, buying homes in those suburbs. Okay. Lauren, does your, anyone in your family own a home? Uh, yes. So same with me, and that is my entire retirement plan. Oh, you plan to retire. Look oh, no, 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 no. So l- let me rephrase. I never plan to retire. <laughs> I will be on this podcast talking to all of you for decades. Oh, good. <laughs> However, and Boston Herald's already yelling at me, so just today, because now i got to cut in, I'm very sorry. I thought I could hack the Boston Herald by just using my phone. And I swear they were listening when we explained that last oh, week. Oh, no. And so, do you know what I did today? I got a Boston Herald subscription. So, I'm going to bring that up in just a second because they just blocked me out after listening to Can me. Can I have your Boston Herald password? Oh, yeah. That's for the team. Yeah. Yeah. You gave me your Hulu. Yeah. And now, you and my now... Hulu. I get your Boston Herald. That is such an even trade, right? It's the nerdiest thing. My <laughs> God. But basically, what his argument was, was that... In 1968, once they lifted the ban and said, yeah, you can't just specifically say you can't sell the black families. But at that point, the cost of homes was so high that for generations, then obviously centuries, if you want to uh, go back to the history of slavery, they didn't have enough wealth to purchase it. Yeah. And isn't like the net or what is the the like, I'm not sure I remember the term, but the average savings or average like wealth of the average like black person in Boston is like something like, you know eight dollars or something compared to like white people who have something some other ridiculously disproportionate amount of savings so i mean that's the you know i'm sure that that redlining had something to do with the lack of ability to get more wealth in the future but uh, there you go yeah median net worth that's the word i was looking okay. for and that wasn't uh lauren didn't just misspeak literally the median net worth which is the person in the middle it's another way of calculating an average the median net worth of black uh, families in Boston is eight dollars. That is how much wealth, and the and as we were just talking about, the reason for that is almost one hundred percent because of denying home ownership. The only reason anyone in the George household, and I like it because my family's listening right now, the only the only reason is because uh, you know the Georges are just flush with cash. Is because of home ownership. We were able to buy homes, and that is how many middle class families were able to advance their kids into. Oh, now we can pay for college. Now you have all these amazing opportunities. Now we're going to be able to leave you a little nest egg, so that I can retire comfortably on my yacht while podcasting. But the median net worth of eight dollars. Yeah. The Herald is still kicking me out because it doesn't believe that I paid them for the the one month. But do you know how much houses cost in Massachusetts right now? A lot. The median is, I believe, $400,000. Just hit it. $400,000 is the median home price. And that's price. not Boston, though. No, no. God, that's no. like all of Massachusetts. You could be talking the Berkshires. You could be talking Worcester. You could be talking... So th- that's all 350... 350- that seems low. That's, well, that's all 351 cities and towns. Right. Throughout all of Massachusetts finding an average. 
And so, and so like that, that includes like Pittsfield, Mass, all the way out west, where homes probably go for like one eighty to two forty. Yeah. As you both look um, at the alerts I'm getting. So home, the cost of homes in Massachusetts is obviously skyrocketing. Yeah, nobody with a net median income of $8 is going to be able to afford that. But a lot of these are like, you know, working families too um, with like extreme amount of debt and cost of living. Isn't that what that ends up? Yes. And also one of the big, and let's just say you hit a luck streak or somebody in your family did something because obviously there are, black families that have more than the eight dollars eight dollars is a median one of the big things that we learned from the financial crisis was that black families are still denied the same loan rates as white families regardless if if you took at two people's sheets their resumes they both make the same amount of money they both have the same net worth they both have this they both have that they controlled for nine different factors and they still found that at the end of the day black and latina families were given worse loans because they were considered more high risk. Right, like their credit score probably like sunk like so much faster than mine did, even though I made terrible decisions. And uh, I want to do a history of the credit score because I think it's one. <laughs> I think it's one of the, the most ingenious ways that capitalism gets us to like self police ourselves. Like we're little kids. Like oh, your score. Look at the like. I, I if that's at- all you have, though. No, no, no. It, it it is, but by giving this arbitrary number, and then they don't make it publicly available, meaning. Like, I can't check your credit score, you can't check mine, but this is another way that uh, banks say, oh, well, we can't tell you why we loaned, gave a better loan to this white family, this black family, because then we'd have to show you their credit score, so we can't show you. And right. so it, it's it's their way of, like, skirting around any sort of just obvious racist bigotry. And landlords can look that up, too. Yes. Have you ever had to, like, submit it to your landlord, your credit score? <laughs> I don't. I don't get to rent those kind of places <laughs> for that exact reason. Um, well, when I lived in New York, I had to. And then even on top of that, my father still had a sign as like a co-lease. That's why your places are a lot nicer than mine. Hey, th- that might be it. <laughs> but no, the, the credit score is a massive scam. Everyone out there, stop worrying about your number. It's okay. It's all made up and BS. <laughs> my credit score sucks, and I've, I'm still alive. Yeah, wear it like a badge of honor. Yeah. But all right, because we just talked about how expensive housing is in uh, not just Boston, but throughout Massachusetts. We gave a little bit of the, the history of redlining, the history of segregating the suburbs. So we're going to do a whole episode and on And that's the one of the reasons why Boston remains one of the more segregated cities. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Still to this day. And I mean... It was designed that way. It was designed that way. Like the city of Chicago was was like almost like another step beyond redlining was just physically laid out. Oh, and this is something else I learned uh, where we started this segment was how they used highways to do this. Right. They would like purposely b- construct highways to just split apart the black parts and the white parts. And now I really want to look at 93 and see if I can figure that out. Uh, I already can think of it. Yeah. So no, like, like, it, like, it's like... one of those things that like once you give it 10 seconds of thought, you're just like, oh, yeah, because on the other side of 93 is that area. And on this side is this. Like the, a lot of our highway system was designed to reinforce all of these, uh, the redlining and segregation that we still find ourselves in today. And then obviously once you build the highways, you have those physical barriers that aren't as easy as changing the color on a map. But okay, we get the housing. Right. Now we need to bring in our savior, Charlie Baker. Oh, Charlie Baker. Because Charlie Baker has a plan. He's had- economy is growing, our population's changing, but it's expanding. But as we've all discussed, our housing production has simply not kept pace over the past few decades. For Massachusetts to continue to grow its economy, we're going to 
going to have to find a way to build more housing. Now, we believe giving municipalities the tools and the incentives to plan that housing, especially in locations that make the most sense around transit and downtowns, so that we can finally see the progress we need to see on an issue that's been stuck in place for almost a generation. And that's why we're here today to announce our administration's new housing choice initiative, which is aimed at producing 135,000 new units of housing by 2025. There are three elements to this initiative. A series of incentives and rewards on new and existing grant programs for communities doing their part to build more housing. Expanded and enhanced technical assistance for communities that want to figure out how to get more housing done. The new legislation, which we'll be introducing later today, that makes it easier for cities and towns to adopt zoning that results in housing production. We most certainly respect the role of municipal leaders in shaping their community's future. And with that in mind, we aim to provide tools to local officials rather than mandates, because mo most communities need to have a p an opportunity and a way to participate in an initiative, in this initiative that works for them. Okay, now we first have to talk about the music. Yeah, that was, was, that, was that the word world's smallest violin in the background or what? I did not put that in there. So, I mean, it's, it's all, all the people that work for these press departments, they were like me and when I was in my early 20s. And what I mean by that is they just watched the West Wing on a loop. So now whenever they listen to any politician talk, they think, oh, we need, we need a string quartet. Because this is this is what leadership. I can just see like an American flag in no, the background, like, I, slowly I am, like faded. No, or... I, I am not joking. <laughs> I, uh, the Chapo boys, who, if you're listening to this, I'm sure you're familiar with. Like they did an entire episode just on, on how Aaron Sorkin just broke the minds of like liberals. Like everyone who staffed the 08 Obama White House was just obsessed with the West Wing. And anyway, that was the music. That was not me. That was not Herb. That was not Lauren. Charlie Baker outlined three parts of his plan. He's been trying to get this passed for two years now. The most important thing was the first thing that he said. And one, because he used the argument, so uh, we're going quick, to quickly bring it up again. He said we need to build more housing. And for the real heads that were watching us since the beginning of Renters Radio will know that, so speaking now about Boston, we have so much empty, vacant luxury apartments. It's all speculative housing. It's all hedge funds. It's all billionaires. So speaking for Boston, it's not a lack of housing. It's a lack of affordable housing. Changing those luxury units to affordable would solve most of those issues. But what Charlie Baker is trying to do is make it so it's easier for cities to build. Because right now you have to have a, a supermajority, two-thirds, have to approve it. He wants to lower that so it's only 50%. So now out of all city and towns in Massachusetts, you don't need a two-thirds majority to have any sort of a zoning change or construction. You just need 50%. Which on one level might, does make sense unless you then start to think about what the consequences of that will be. Because if it's easier to build in these cities and there are no other restrictions, there's no other considerations, all of these cities and towns are only going to build luxury housing. Right. Because that is the only thing that actually benefits them. And this probably is going to require more time than I want to go into right now. But just focus on that. Cities and towns are not going to vote in low-income public housing. 
there's a, some of it's uh, there's a racial dynamic. Some of it act, uh, does make sense in terms of property value. Some of it is a lot about how we fund public education. But cities and towns will not be advocating affordable housing. They will say, oh, yeah, let's let like a millionaire come here, boost our tax base. Their kid's going to a private school anyway. We'll just pocket the money. Right. So without having any restrictions on this or any other considerations, making it easier to build is actually going to harm housing production. And that's where I thought I was going to end this clip. I was like, okay, I'll let Charlie Baker talk. All right, now we have him on the record. I don't have to cite it. But then I kept listening to this YouTube thing. And they have, and I'm sorry, they have some asshat who then comes up. (laughs) And I was like jaw dropped. He texted me about it. Because what? And I got to get his name again. I'm going to bring it up when Herb's playing. That's how much his jaw dropped. It was just horror show. But like you have to really listen and... I'll break it down. All right, her play it. We might have to First play this twice. Instead of the traditional approach of simply subsidizing an artificially expensive housing market, the approaches in this bill seek to use market forces to build the right types of products at affordable prices that respond to younger first-time home buyers and downsizing baby boomers. This approach and the strategy the administration is outlining actually uses housing as a tool for greater economic and community development growth throughout the Commonwealth. That makes this a very exciting change in the dialogue of how we approach housing in Massachusetts and what we use housing for other than simply for sheltering people. Okay. I, I know the music hit it. I know he used a lot of words that people who aren't like me, who just have read and listened to all this on a loop. Did you get the sense of why what he just said was horrific? Well, I mean, the last sentence was pretty horrific. Okay. Um, Herb, can we play it again? And I'll like stop at certain points. And just ignore the violins. First of all, this is devil stuff. Of the traditional approach of simply subsidizing an artificially expensive housing market the approaches in this bill seek to use market forces. Okay, if you ever hear, hear somebody say we're going to use market forces, fucking run. Run the other <laughs> direction, the invisible hand. Because that means two things. That either means who you're talking about is a complete idiot. And this guy is a, C, um, he's a CEO for like a community development group, I think, in the South Shore. I got to get the full title. So if you say market forces, that either means you're a complete idiot because as we've talked about, and we'll continue to talk about it on this program, it, market forces are always going to be geared towards making money. That's what a market is. You're buying and selling goods at a market. And so what that means is that if you're poor, if you don't have money, if you have $8 of wealth, then guess what? You're not participating in a market because you don't have money, which means that when you, these people are trying to plan housing, what he's saying is those people don't exist. Right. This is a market. And if you're not buying and selling in the market, then you're just somewhere else. So right, again, it's housing as a commodity, not as yes, like and, an and, actual thing that people need for shelter. And he says that at the end, yeah. which is like the power's <laughs> like, I can't believe he just said that. Yeah. Somebody definitely pulled him. He's like, dude, you can't talk like that. That scares people. But if someone ever says again that we need to use market forces, they either are an idiot and have no understanding about how that is, or they are a, li- a lizard person. <laughs> and, and, and what they mean is like, oh, no, if you're poor, then like you just don't exist because you're not in the market. So like, why should we talk about you? You do not fit my framework yes. for the economy. And 
Um, all right, Herb, keep it going. I, okay. Then he refers to housing as products. Right. Again, this is another person who took one class of macroeconomics who just their mind broke of just any physical understanding or realization of how, or how does this impact people. C- CEO is probably worth millions. Mm-hmm. Seek to use market forces to build the right types of products at affordable prices that respond to younger first-time home buyers and downsizing baby boomers. This approach and the strategy the administration is outlining actually uses housing as a tool for greater economic and community development growth throughout the Commonwealth. That makes this a very exciting change in the dialogue of how we approach housing in Massachusetts and what we use housing for other than simply for sheltering people. All right. So either than simply a house as, again, you can go the Maslow hierarchy of needs. You need shelter to survive. I, I, I work in disaster relief. Every four hours you need to have shelter, whether that's clothing or a house, a protection from the environment. So what he's saying is, oh, no, no, we shouldn't just look at it as like a shelter. Or God forbid you looked at it as like a home where somebody like feels safe and has physical and mental health benefits that we don't even fully know the full ramifications of, of a safe, stable home environment. Let's look at this as a way to increase economic. He had some. Uh, he said community growth. I'm not sure he knows what community means. No, because <laughs> for him, we are ants in like a farm. Right. And it's about like, well, how, how do we get the ants to carry a 20% more sugar load? Right. For, for whatever sick satisfaction this individual needs to have more economic output of. Again, the people who talk like this are either very dumb, which is possible. It's possible like. He's using the words he sounds as a violin in the background. It sounds like he knows what he's talking about. So he might just be very dumb. And and they're just like, oh, people keep giving me money, so I'll keep taking it. Or they are lizard people who, this is not about humans. This is not about any sense of what humanity means. It is just how do we now look at you like a math equation and tweak it to squeeze as much profit as we can out of you. And using like one of the basic human necessities yes. to do so. yes. So, that's gross. Yes. It's horrible. <laughs> and and they've been trying to get this passed for two years now. It keeps failing, thank God, because if you you can't just make it easier to build any housing a community wants, you because as we've said before, it is not profitable to give poor people homes. Right. It just isn't. Because again, you have to have money to participate in a market. So if you want to have any foundation or direction or policy goal of actually benefiting humans, you have to ignore market forces because that is irrelevant to this equation and actually focus on the needs of people. Hashtag socialism. (laughs) (laughs) But okay, that was our very long, and I probably went longer than Lauren will yell at me at the break. I might come back with a little thing on my chin too. But the history of redlining, the history of the FHA, because Ben Carson, who runs HUD, he talks about how any sort of program which might benefit like black home or Latino home ownership, that's social engineering. And what he's trying to say is that right now what we have is natural, that this was all just the result of nature. Nobody drew a map and connected lines that blocked people. That didn't happen. This is just natural. So the government shouldn't do any programs that benefit people because that's going to be social engineering. 
where in reality it's the exact opposite. Right. It was the direct government policies that drew the lines which dictated where you could live and where that other person couldn't. And any chance to rectify that for them is social engineering. The other is just natural because they benefited from the system. It sounds like a whole lot of doublespeak going on oh, in all those clips. They're all lizard people. All lizard people. But th- again, thankfully, this hasn't passed. Um, and hopefully, we're going to have rent control or we're actually going to make public investments in housing so that it's not up to the market to decide. The last thing we want deciding uh, housing policy is uh, the market at this point. We should have learned no. that by now. But okay, thank you for letting me go off on that. I, I actually I really enjoyed that. that. Um, feel better? I do. Okay. It was very cathartic. But yeah. actually, now I'm like sad. Oh. I know. Want to get sadder? Sure. We can move into the next segment. I'm ready to get right into it. All right, go I right I don't on. need a break. There I want to talk about something that came out. Well, it's been a long time coming. It's an issue close to my heart. It's an issue close to Herb's heart. It relates to uh, our old home over at WEMF in Cambridge. I'm sure a lot of people watching, listening, know what I'm talking about. But this was our old artist space, community, um, based out of this, I don't know, wicked old building uh, over in Central Square. But it was our home. And... Um, what happened was uh, this developer, um, you could call him DiGiorno, but his name's actually DiGiovanni. Uh, Don, John DiGiovanni bought it and uh, turned it into office spaces, or they haven't become office spaces yet. Um, but there was a big fight, uh, kicked everybody out, people occupied. This happened a couple summers ago. When was this, Herb? I feel like it's been forever. Three years. Three years? My God. Um, but anyway, they've. Uh, one of the last things that we did in the fight against the Giovanni, one of the last things that uh, State Rep Mike Connolly did, um, some of our friends from Save EMF, uh, Ben Simon, a few other folks uh, got together. And Steve Onderick. Steve Onderick. Shout out to Steve Onderick. We'll have him call in. We're going to, we're going to, we've got big plans to c- memorialize WEMF. But anyway, um, so one of the last things they did uh, was try to um, get this uh, building designated as a historical landmark due to its uh, architectural and cultural significance, which didn't actually stop any of the bad stuff from happening. Um, we all still got kicked out and had to find a new spot, um, ended up here, which is great. But uh, what it did do was prevent Don- John DiG- It basically was l- one last stick, sticking it to this developer. And this was like this like kind of drawn-out fight that we were all following. A bunch of city councilors backed us on it. Uh, Quinton Zondervan was one of them. Um, a few others, and uh, the uh, Historical Commission of Cambridge actually uh, took up this process of designating this a historical landmark, and uh, we found out this week that we actually won. Um, It's not really much of a win because uh, we're all here and not there, but it means that instead of building that, turning that building into like a 20-floor office park, he can only keep it to the uh, three floors that it was originally built at. He can't change the outside too much. I hope he can't get rid of the orange signage. That'd be pretty fun. Um, there have been a lot of changes at that building anyway. I've seen them put in like new windows and whatnot. We still walk by there all the time. But it's going to prevent his profits on that. <laughs> like, yeah, like just by so much. Um, you know, 20 floors is a lot more. Right than, where it hurts him. Yeah, we just hit him right in the wallet where it hurts. And uh, the Historical Commission of Cambridge... Uh, that agreed to designate it a historical landmark. I have a lot of appreciation for them, even though it's still I'm still bitter. I'm gonna be honest. I'm it hurts still because I have so many memories there and I'm not there. And but it is nice to just kind of like give one final stab 
before on your way out, you know? Yeah, it's like, one just, good F you. Yeah, exactly. And I really appreciate everyone who fought for this, uh, especially Mike Connolly, um, and for continuing the fight uh, to designate this as a historical landmark so that this particular jerk developer cannot make so much damn money on this property that he took from us. What's his name? Don Giovanni? Don, John DiGiovanni. It's uh, a good Italian boy. Mm. Well, I doubt he's good. We call him a lot of things. He's not that good. His lawyers aren't that great either. Um, Clearly. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a few. Uh, oh, oh, do we have phone lines open? Ooh, drop the number. Yeah, let's, what's the number again? Bam. It's up on the screen. <laughs> it is 872. I don't see our number here. I was going to say, I don't see it on the screen either. Yell it. What's the phone number? The phone number is 872-810-2125. And if you're listening on a podcast right now, you're missing out. You got to watch us live. You can call in. Yeah. If anybody, you know, I have a lot of EMF friends and Cambridge friends. If anyone feels like giving us a call to talk more about this, we are happy to take that call. If not, we might go to break and then come back with some more shenanigans. Um, but I do appreciate everyone who worked so hard in Cambridge City Council just to get this sort of small victory um, passed. Uh, you know, it is. it will... Be nice to know that as I walk by uh, WEMF, which I will still continue to do because it's right near the Middle East and a bunch of other things, um, that I won't see a giant commercial tower and hopefully uh, somebody falls off the roof. I don't know. <laughs> um, and uh, oh, we have got a caller who's on the line. Hello? Can you hear us? Yes. Hey, Hello? who's this? Hi, this is uh, Dan Totten. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Um, good. How are you, Lauren? I'm doing good. How's the show going so far? It's awesome. I really, I'm really enjoying it. Really enjoying hearing you uh, and 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 talk about all the. This, I, I'm real. I'm really enjoying it. I wanted to say one thing on the uh, redlining before before sure. I talk about EMF, which is the main reason why I'm calling. Okay. But uh, basically, so I grew up in a suburb that's like four miles as the crow flies from here. So basically, it's like 20 minutes away. It's very close. My graduating class. Um, which was about 10 years ago, had 360 kids in it. And of those 360 kids, seven of them were black. And um, where was this? In, it's in Needham. Okay, okay, that makes a sense. Suburb. And on top of that, there's this program called the MECO program, which basically brings. Um, children of color, black and, and Latino, from the city into suburbs like Needham. Basically, any suburb um, in that area has them. Needham, Wellesley, New I think Acton Actually, Boxborough sure had some, does. too. It, uh, but, um, yeah, it's all over. No, yeah, uh, not to cut you off, Dan, but uh, for the people listening who might not know, so like the concept of busing, of, of you know, uh, taking um, – 
African-American kids from one district bring them to another and vice versa. This is still like a running program. It is the most successful in the country. This has been used in countless studies for decades to show how much this works, how much changing someone's school environment or just just putting them in a different location is beneficial for the child. So uh, are you saying that was kind of like the only reason that uh, those kids were able to get to your school? Yeah, yeah. Where I was going with that is that I actually know these kids, and so I was able to sort of figure it out that five out of the seven came through Metco. And so that means that there were only two black families living in that suburb and in, in my year. Right. Essentially. Um, that, that had kids in, that had kids in my year. Um, now, of course, you know, there are kids in other years, but that my point is that, that, that like, it's still like that's that's segregation like it's still segregated and and Metco is great and we need to we need to expand Metco I mean we we should be busing like there's anyway that's that's a whole other story but but the point is the natural state of things is still segregation absolutely yeah uh, our so, schools are more segregated now in some cities than they were before Brown versus Board of Education passed in the 1950s yeah, it's it's absurd. Anyway, I mainly wanted to talk about um, EMF because that's something I've been following pretty closely. Um, and I think the big thing here to remember is that it was the artists that signed the petition, that um, that they petitioned the Historical Commission to try to get this landmark. And if you look at the report, um, what's really cool about about this process is that the when when the artist signed this petition and said, "Hey, historical commission, we want you to we want you to consider whether this building should be landmarked or not." That triggered a year long period where they had historians actually look into it and really seriously look into it. And they produced a 22-page report, which, once I get off the call, I can put in the comments. I would love but to see that. It's beautiful. And yeah. they interviewed Anna Ray, and they interviewed John Glancy. Nice. And um, a few others. And they did a really good job with it. And part of what they – part of the report was the current use. And so I think what's – What's really neat about this designation is that it's not just for the architectural significance. So of course, you know, it's it's neat that it's an old factory building and and all that, but it's also it's it's part of its designation comes from the the significance of of it culturally right. and what it means to the Central Square Cultural District, which is just down the street. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, I guess that is uh, I would I would really like to read that report, actually. I haven't seen it yet, but um, I feel like that would be very nice to read uh, for me and for, you know, considering I probably know a lot of the people that um, petitioned and have been following it as well. And also that the yeah, it wasn't really about the building. Um, it was about what happened there. It was about the friends we made there. It was about the community we built there. 
and the art that was made there and the culture cultural significance really so um yeah definitely send that send that i would really appreciate it yeah and and one one other thing um about the about this situation is is to talk about this developer a little bit <laughs> oh yeah um because you know he he owns you know, people say this all the time, but he owns half of Harvard Square. Right. I mean, look. I mean, it's this isn't like oh, he owns you know a triple decker on, on, Mass Ave or something. This is he owns like the garage, like that that big building that's kind of like a mall in Harvard Square where they oh, have yeah. like a Newbury Comics and all. That. He owns that. Yeah. He owns the Sinclair building. He owns yep. the parking garage. I mean, it's just absurd how much this guy owns and is capable of um, developing these big, large-scale projects. Didn't he, and, didn't he uh, currently, like, recently obtain, obtain that little newsstand that was, like, in the middle of... Did uh, he buy that? that? That's what I heard no, as well. He, it's not, that's not him. That's um, the city. The city owns the newsstand. Oh, okay. And they're, gonna, they're putting this thing called Culture House in there. I don't really know what it is, but... Um, that's what's going in there, and the news, the news guy. The, yeah, it's just a complicated situation. But he doesn't own that one. But the point is that um, that he is capable of doing a, of of doing a really big project. And I'm not saying that he would have, but now at this point, he can't just build it out with with ten stories of office, right? Or of lab. He can't just build a big lab there. And I think that's a win because if he were to do that, it would have been it would be an even bigger hit to people living in the area in terms of affordability as commercial development and lab development is really sinister. Yeah, and it's not puzzle. like uh, MIT isn't already buying all the other buildings there and building labs, so Yeah. Well There's a lot of there's yeah, a lot of other spaces another... being bought turned into labs there, so yeah, but, um... but anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. I uh, I really appreciate the show, and I really appreciate um, what what you guys are doing, and um, keep it up. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna just hang up. All, All right, right. thank you. Drop the link to the uh, the report, please. Thank you. Yeah, take it easy, Dan. And, thank uh, you. I'm gonna plug it later, but we're having a uh, Bernie Sanders holiday party that you're more than invited to uh, Thursday night. Oh, awesome. Yeah, check yeah, the uh, check the DSA page. Be good. Sweet. Looking forward to it. Talk to you later. All right, take it easy, Sweet. Dan. Bye bye. I was gonna ask if Dan wanted to like reveal who he was, but that's okay. I think he said who he was. No, no I, well, I mean, like what he does professionally. I think he is his own profession. That's true. Dan Totten is like <laughs> the professional. He knows everything all the time. Um. All right, how are you feeling? Uh, let's take a break. We can get back to some fun stuff. <laughs> like your buddy? <laughs> I mean, we can get back and check in with Rod Weber, maybe. Okay, let's do it. If, if he's around, I don't know, hit him up. If not, we can talk about uh, the recount. Nah. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at Herb right now. Like, Herb, do you have any thoughts? Nah, everything went great. Yeah. It was fine. But, um, yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I, I'm gonna. I'm also gonna plug that. I'm gonna continue on like the you know uh, EMF uh, memor memorabilia pattern for a little bit until I get out of my system. 
Um, one of those things is going to commence with a WEMF Miss special episode December 23rd. So make sure you tune in if you want to be included, if you want to call in, if you want to pack the studio because you were part of it, uh, hit me up. It'll be great. We've got some confirmed guests, some special people who led a protest in Harvard Square, but I'm not going to reveal their names yet, but you probably know who they are uh, about uh, saving EMF and uh, friends of the show and whatnot. So on that note, uh, it will never be forgotten. It's now officially a historical landmark, and it's a historical landmark in my heart, and we'll continue to stick it to developers and celebrate the community of artists here in Boston and Cambridge and Somerville now. So take it easy. We might be back. <laughs> Later. Mm-hmm. Slash halftime. Halftime, maybe? Like three quarters and a half. Well, I mean, unless you want to just do plugs. Stop to you. <coughs> Let's take a break and figure it out. All right. Taking a break. Sound effects. Do-do-do. We need to get a sound. Um, and like I said, we've we Rob's called into the show multiple times um, about various issues, so he is a friend of the show. So let's see if he'll call us again. Hit us up, Rod, 872-810-2125. Let's talk about what the heck went on down there. Down in Miami. I know, down in Miami. See, I, now I do want to look into what this whole art exhibit is. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. If you can't pronounce it, I can't pronounce it. So I'm not taking a swing at it. I know my strengths and weaknesses. Either Art Basil or Art Basil. But I just can't believe you can now Google banana duct tape <laughs> Epstein didn't kill himself. And that is now a thing. And that's... Um, this has been covered by all the major... I'm looking at the Washington stories. Examiner right now. Epstein didn't kill himself. $120,000 duct taped banana art vandalized. Yeah. But what else do you do with a $120,000 duct tape banana stand well, art? Um, again, this is clearly, hey, we need to like wash this money just... Get somebody you know. Oh, there we go. Rod can tell us what's up. Yeah, say Rod's not going to deny the opportunity. Let's see. Rod, you on? Hello. Hey, you there? Hey, can you hear us? Uh, much better than last time. I I guess Herb's worked out some of the kinks. Glad to hear it. Where are you? Are you? I mean, you don't have to be that specific, but are you still down there? Uh, I'm. Yeah, I'm in Miami. I just met with my bail bondsman, uh, which was a big thing hanging over my head. But the wacky thing uh, about the Miami system here is it doesn't seem to be like any of the other uh, wonderful states or commonwealths that I've been arrested in. And I've been arrested in at least four in the past four months. Yeah, that's true. Four for four. All right. It's not bad. I, I... I uh, I have some good luck with that, uh, uh, but so just usually you get some kind of information uh, when you're being uh, released or discharged, and they say when your court date is going to be. Not with not with Florida, nothing. So I think uh, I think I'm onto something as to why uh, Florida man memes exist. Um, there's there's no law and order. Not that I think that law and order is necessarily a good thing, since government's inherently evil. But that's a much longer discussion that um you know we don't necessarily have to get into, and this has nothing to do with location, which is all you're asking me. Okay, so um, are you're free for now? Yes. What do they charge you with? <laughs> uh, oh, it's the best charge ever. Uh, it's criminal mischief. Ooh. Ooh. Mischief. I like the yeah. sound of that. It's like shenanigans. It is absolutely shenanigans. 
but so here's the thing. And a lot of the articles that are circulating around, and I've just kind of been sharing most of them willy-nilly because they're hilarious. Uh, but just like everything, it just they're full of disinformation. Um, and while they might be calling it an act of vandalism, uh, we all must keep in mind uh, that, that lipstick comes off, you know, not not maybe necessarily as easily as your children's crayons um, on the living room walls, but uh, it comes off. Uh, vandalism is defined as uh, the permanent and intentional de- defacement of something uh, with the purpose of being an asshole. Um, and uh, it is not that. Even the police conceded uh, that it wasn't really uh, vandalism because it was not permanent, um, which is why they're giving me this ridiculous misdemeanor charge, evidently because that's all they could come up with. Right. Um, so, so, uh, so, so, Rod, I have, I have three leading questions. So you can take either one you want. First of all, um, okay. why did you attend the art show? Can you explain that? The second question is, where did you get the lipstick? And then the third question, and you just, you might need to actually address this at a, a separate point, is can you explain the Epstein didn't kill himself? Because I know that's what you're known for, but for the people who's going to be listening to this later, can you explain why and how that became your thing? Uh, well, I hope I'm known for more than uh, the Epstein. <laughs> I, I've only met you briefly. Well, actually, I've never met you in person. I haven't had the pleasure yet. But in my knowledge of your existence... This seems to be a thing with you. Fair enough. But, 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 but that's, the, uh, that's yeah. a later point. Why were you at the art show? Where'd you get the lipstick? Um, so I'm down in Miami for uh, one of the satellite fairs, which is called the uh, Fridge Art Fair. Uh, there's, I think, some, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 art fairs uh, down here uh, during Art Week. And it's a regular orgy of spray paint cans and uh, graffiti on the sidewalks, the walls, the, the clouds. Uh, basically, anything that can be painted on is being painted on uh, down here at Art Week. And so, yeah, I was part of one of those satellite fairs. Uh, as to, uh, and, and also, I, I, I should add that I was uh, representing uh, Vermin Supreme and Dave Tree. And uh, brought, down, uh, yep, brought down some of their artwork as well. Um, and, uh, you know, do my best to uh, hawk our wares, uh, whether it be in the, uh, the gallery setting or even just down in uh, what they call Wynwood, which is uh, really the, the epicenter of the, uh, the street art scene down here. Um, but so beyond that, in uh, Miami Beach, um, that's, it's, that's held at the convention center, uh, which is uh, kind of your more traditional gallery setting. And um, basically what it is, it's, a, it's the largest gathering, well, I, I believe it's the largest gathering, if not one of the top three, but I'm fairly certain the top uh, gathering of art galleries at art fairs in, in the world. Um, there's literally hundreds of these things with all the quote-unquote top-notch uh, uh, masters uh, like uh, Andy Warhol and his soup cans, which, oh, God, the mastery of that. Oh, it has... Who could have thought of that? The <laughs> yeah. Um, and the or, banana. Um, you know, your, your Modiglianos or your Miros or your, you know, what, uh, Picasso, whatever you can think of. I mean, um, you know, all the way down to, uh, you know, more modern stuff like Banksy or Dane or Nicky Peaches. Um, whole nine yards. Um, 
So anyhow, uh, so I was I was down for the satellite fair, and I was just uh, down for doing the art thing in general. Uh, so I mean, as, as far as my, you know, what I did uh, to the Broad Gallery, that wasn't planned in the least bit. Uh, quite honestly, I, uh, when I came down here, I knew nothing about this banana exhibit, um, but it seemed to be the talk of the town, and uh, you know, you can't help but make fun of it because it's so ridiculous and. To me, it just seems like it's a meme doing the stupid things that memes do, and this is why it gets people talking. And from my standpoint, I, I have a hard time believing that anyone actually really bought it. Um, uh, quite honestly, it's, it's, it's got to be a damn setup. And so when I, when I uh, saw that particular rest, that rat wandered the room. I thought to myself, okay, so they've gotten uh, David the Tuna to take the thing off the wall and eat it, and they're saying it's a $120,000 item. Um, and afterwards, they say, oh, no, 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 it's not about the physical art. It's an idea. But that goes against well-established uh, uh, modes of commerce uh, going back for centuries within the art world, uh, which is about rarefied objects. And the whole the whole thing that makes like Basquiat or Warhol um, of importance and um, valuable, or, or even like, you know someone like a Keith Haring, um, is because I'm going to take Andy Warhol out of that. But like uh, Keith <laughs> Haring or or, uh, or, or or Basquiat died young. Um, they have a limited amount of works, and so it increases the value of their work. Um, so it's always been about rarefied objects. So now that they're just saying that it's a certificate of authenticity and that they didn't destroy the actual art because the art is the idea, that, I mean, that goes well-established, uh, you know, modes, you know, going back to sense. Um, so I'm thinking to myself, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> and uh, the, the first thought that came to mind was I'm just going to go in there and spray paint bullshit on the wall. Um, but then... You know, the other problem that I find is that the art world is so insular that uh, certainly uh, the art world itself probably would have responded uh, better to that um, because it's not political. It would just be calling bullshit as it is. Um, but part, one of my big problems with the art world at all is they're not making anything of any importance. So... Uh, you know, why not uh, bring in a head scratcher or something that uh, will get people thinking about uh, the, the larger world around them? Um, uh, a, a thing that is profoundly stupid uh, and also, uh, you know, perhaps one of the most important things of our lifetime. It's hard to know uh, because the government has a long and storied uh, past of uh, lies, deceit, and outright fabrication. We can look to the weapons of mass destruction lies. Uh, going back to the false flag uh, of the Native Americans uh, smuggling tea, um, excuse me, the, the Sons of Liberty, Liberty dressing as the Native Americans to do the tea into the harbor. Uh, so, I mean, from, from the get-go, our country has been about lies, lies, and lies. And I think this is probably just too nuanced uh, for the average art basil-goer, uh, but I decided that i throw one of those monkey wrenches into the works nonetheless and uh, see if it would um, ring any bells. Um, I guess it did. Yeah, so, it sounds like you rang a lot of bells. I was going to say, um, th this might be the first time <laughs> in 
months that I've seen Epstein's name listed for some of the top national publications. So you definitely got it back out there. And I asked Lauren this during the, and we showed the video of your arrest. I'm not sure if you're able to see it before you called in. But can you explain why did you take on the mantle of Epstein didn't kill himself? Is this just like a, as you were saying, a way of like piercing a veil to kind of expose deeper hypocrisy and lies? Or is this like an actual issue? Are you very invested in the whole Epstein larger web? Or is this just more of a medium that you used, not, not to troll people, but to actually highlight what is a very important point of a much larger deception which is going on? Okay, so there is a much larger deception going on. So let me say first and foremost uh, that I'm a man of empirical evidence. When people ask me what I believe, I say that uh, belief is for religious zealots and uh, child molester priests. Uh, I'm not about that sort of thing. I need empirical evidence uh, that be based upon uh, the best evidence available at any given time. The problem with that, if anyone is uh, familiar at all with the government, again, as I said, uh, they have a long history of lying, uh, whether it's Operation Northwoods, uh, Building 7 and 9-11, or JFK, or any of these things. Uh, there's, I don't want to spend all night on uh, you know, these uh, various conspiracy investigations, uh, but there's, just, there's provable ed- evidence for all kinds of things uh, that are wildly fishy about uh, what the American government has been doing. So, uh, that being said, um, it is... Uh, I like that it's a meme to get people thinking about those issues in general. Um, If it can open the conversation to me talking about these things, I can point out, hey, yeah, uh, you ever hear of Building 7? And a lot of people have it. And so it's like, well, there were two airplanes that crashed on 9-11 in the city and three towers fell. Did you know that? And, uh, you know, it seems like 90% of the people out there don't even seem aware of these basic facts about what happened on that day. Or um, it's like faux pas to like acknowledge it. I mean, uh, so I'm not sure how much I will, I'm going to go down the, the 9-11 well, but what you are saying is absolutely correct. And Tower 7 is not mentioned in the uh, 9-11 uh, commission report, which was like oddly published at like Barnes and Noble. I remember seeing that uh, later on when I was in high school. But uh, just staying on the Epstein thing, uh, is that like something that you've looked a lot into? Because I was talking to Lauren, and if you want to do an Epstein episode as like a fun break, because I can go off on that. I've actually been following that pretty uh, closely, especially his ties uh, with the CIA and his ranch in Nevada. So is that like a specific thing that you know a lot about and want to talk about? Or again, is this more used as like a medium as part of your art to like expose a larger hypocrisy? Uh, I, I'll, I'll be straight up with you. Um, there's only so much time in the day to uh, investigate every um, horrible thing uh, that our government or, or powerful men uh, related to our government have done. So I'm not the expert there. If you want to talk to the expert, you got to talk to Derek Rose from the Consciousness Resistance. Right. Uh, he's got a channel on YouTube, and uh, he made a documentary about that before uh, Epstein went into jail and... Um, and died and all that stuff. He's the guy that you should really talk to. Oh, that'd be um, fun. I, you know, I could certainly talk about it to a degree, um, but you know, as, as as you were saying, it is uh, for me at least. It's um, it was it was the meme that was going around uh, at the time when I went to register uh, 
uh, to get on the ballot to run as president of New Hampshire there. Obviously, it's a satirical campaign. Um, but uh, so I, I just uh, – yeah, it's it, it's something to get people's minds thinking. So basically, uh, basically, Rod Weber is the zeitgeist. Okay, he's just got <laughs> his finger on the pulse of the memes and the mimetic warfare going on. Um, so where was Dave, where was Tree during all this? Where was Dave Tree? Was he there? Dave Tree is up there. He just okay. did uh, an a new alliance. At the I know. Time. I just yeah. saw him. That's why I was like, how did he get down there I was going to so say, we, we were drinking with him like two nights ago. Yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> but his art was down there with you. Yes, exactly. Oh, okay. Um, I did not physically bring Dave and Vermin, uh, although that would have been fun. Yeah, no, I was <laughs> wondering. Um, that that would have been fun. Um, so yeah, uh, is Vermin. it... Sorry, can you hear me? It's chopping. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, is it art? So it's art Basil. Yes. Been saying it wrong the whole time. Um, what was the? Uh, what were they like over there? I'm just really curious about what the like regular people and the reaction that you saw. I, I guess they're not regular people, right? But like, what what were they like? Uh, do, do you mean art Basil in general, or just the people that were watching what I was doing? No, the art. Well, both, I guess. But the the I guess the uh, people going to art Basil that you witnessed. Uh, well, I mean, the, the thing about art Basil, or uh, which is it's kind of the king or queen of all the art fairs, if you will. Uh, but you know, generally speaking, you know, the bigger ones are inhabited with, with people that have uh, pocketbooks, which are way too big. Um, for their own good and uh, you know by and large uh when i got to say like like the new york ones which i'm more likely to do just because they're close to boston talk and it you feel there's like this sexual dynamic where there's these men who have worked in the bank for all their lives in new york city and they've got piles of money and credit cards and you know a trophy wife who's had like too many plastic surgeries and doesn't ever work, and basically just goes furniture shopping uh, for painting. Um, and it's just like, uh, you know, give me the credit card, and uh, let's, you know, let's buy this Banksy, let's buy this and that. Um, and to a second degree, I think um, uh, whoever the breadwinner there is using it as an investment, um, you know, because you don't want to have, you know, if you're doing all your money laundering schemes uh, as all the millionaires do. You don't want to have too much cash because that's what they come after. Right. Um, but if you have investments and paintings and fancy cars, um, you know, those are assets that are harder to take away. So uh, I just I really would have liked to see uh, your art be purchased there. Then I feel like if I was a rich banker and witnessed oh. that, I would have loved to drop one hundred and twenty thousand dollars on the Epstein didn't kill himself lipstick. I mean, I'm guessing the harder part is having the network to get your exhibit there. Because once your exhibit is there, now you you got that blue check mark, and now you're going to get the like, house. Did work. anyone offer to buy it? Has anyone reached out to you, like really appreciating your work? Well, first of all, fuck the blue check mark. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I don't need I, I don't need to appeal to anyone's authority. Uh, uh, secondly, I, you know, I sold a bunch of stuff, but I'm selling them at working man's prices, right. um, and I've said you know uh, name your price any price and i sincerely mean that and some people just take and i'm fine with that too um uh as, as far as the big piece that i did at the broughton gallery 
Um, I have reached out to them uh, to ask for it back or uh, in lieu of that, um, that, you know, they could, they could act as, as my agent and uh, maybe we could uh, sell it to starving children in Ethiopia or something. Like that. But anyhow, they haven't gotten back to me. Uh, of course, that would be the ultimate um, uh, silliness coup, uh, which, you know, because really if you're going to get into mimetic warfare, um, it is just a coup of, of silliness. You can only fight stupid with more stupid. Um, and again, it's it's profound stupidity of you know versus uh, that which uh, may be uh, one of the more important things uh, in in our lifetime. So, um, so uh, have you been getting a lot of press? I mean, obviously your name's out there. Again, you're on national headlines right now. Have you have people been trying to contact you of like trying to get you to interview? Obviously, thank you for being our most uh, devoted fan to always calling to hear. But I, I'm just curious, have like other publications, like more national uh, outlets, have reached out to you to try to do interviews? Yeah, so um, obviously I got arrested yesterday. They let me out at about 5 a.m. And I've, uh, aside from uh, cleaning up at the fair today, I've basically been doing uh, interviews all day. Um, everything from like your local news affiliates Hey, it's WSFFM, blah, 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 <laughs> that kind of thing, uh, all the way to Rolling Stone, to the Washington Post. I I'll feel like I'm bragging if I list anymore, but you get the idea. Have you been listed as a headline that starts with, I guess you're not really Florida, man. I was gonna say, dude, chill in Miami for a little bit. Like, yeah. r- like r- ride this, uh, this high mark. You can get into some pretty good parties, probably. Uh, you know, it's, I could do that. Uh, you know, that's, that's not necessarily my reason for getting into these things. I'd rather raise the consciousness and raise my alcohol blood level. Um, <laughs> but, I, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, there's definitely stuff still going on in Wynwood. And uh, Vermin wants me to meet up with him uh, this Friday uh, for a big event that's going on in Tennessee. And so I figure if I, I take a two-day drive up there, I could leave. I guess Wednesday, and so I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll just check out some more Winwood stuff tomorrow. And cool. um, do you have to go to court? Yeah. And, oh, well, so that's the other fun thing. As I was trying to say at the beginning, um, uh, Florida has given me no specifications on what I need to do. So I just spoke to my bail bondsman uh, right before I talked to you guys, and he he said, "Yeah, that's just how they do it here." Um, as long as your address is right and the phone number is right, um, they'll let you know when it's time to know, or they might send something to me. And that just seems totally backward and oh, just makes it difficult for people, really. Um, so, I, I mean, it's, especially when I don't, I mean, it doesn't seem like um, the punishment could be any greater than what my bail was, which was $1,000. Jeez. Um, Yes, which is a horrifying amount for something so piddly, really, um, in my estimation. For but, mischief, um, you yeah, know, that's a lot. Yeah, the mischief. But uh, uh, but to answer your second question, um, I bought the makeup at CVS. Oh, what brand is it? <laughs> um, you know they they confiscated and destroyed my property, uh, which go against my. I was like literally right. gonna go out tomorrow and buy like whatever Maybelline shade of red lipstick you happen to get with the CVS coupon just to wear it. Be like, this is no, the Epstein you know, red. Well, I, I, 
I I could go back and uh and and find it. I'm sure it it wasn't um it wasn't one of the CVS specials. Like actually, I, I wanted one that was the right size, uh, that wouldn't look too long, uh, that looked like something that you fit in your pocket, and um I I could absolutely identify it if I saw it again. Okay. So well. I, I, well- We'll have to look into that. I'm I'm extremely curious, and I'm in the market for some new makeup myself, so I might want to get the uh, shade of Epstein red for this Christmas. You, you, you've got to you've got to remember as, as as much as I might not come across as such, but uh, I I you know I did go to art school, and uh, I I do have an eye for such things, so I'm I'm sure I can find it again. Okay, good to know. Yeah, let us know. But I uh, always appreciate you calling in. That was thank you. I wish I didn't say that. I wish I didn't say I dropped out of art school, man. I dropped out. <laughs> hey, I mean, you're on national headlines right now, yeah. so you clearly picked up something. It's too weird. It's too <laughs> weird, man. It was I know what it was? It was too pretentious. Yeah. That 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 was the whole thing. That uh it it really was about oh, can you know, can we make the edges on the cut of the mat perfect <laughs> and the information perfect and and people were making all kinds of meaningless things that just didn't really uh, strike my fancy. And so uh, screw all that. And so I dropped out. Yeah. Much, they... I'm sure much my parents chagrin, but whatever. Well, I mean, um, look, look where you are today. You're making national headlines with meaningful political art. So, I mean, yeah. this is some yeah. Adbuster stuff right here. I guess. I, can't, I don't, you know, it shouldn't be about that, though. I mean, I, I you know, honestly, I, I don't know. I, I, I hear what you're saying, though. I hear what you're saying. Um, and, um, you know, what I'd really like to see is for them to uh, reopen the Epstein case. I'd like to yeah. see uh, 9-11 be properly investigated as well as JFK. But we just we know these things aren't going to happen. Um, so in a lot of ways, uh, I find myself at the end of the day saying uh, we're doomed. We're just we're doomed. But there's two ways of looking at it. Like you can say, like, we're doomed and frowny face or – we're doomed. Like, let's make some crazy hard. <laughs> We're doomed. Nothing um, matters. Let's at least have fun and try to do the best we can. Absolutely. So yeah. That's, you know, that's kind of where. Yeah. I um, feel that. Well, will you be back up for Christmas? I uh, yeah. Well, I have to do another court case in uh, New York State <laughs> for my last. Uh, I have to after I do Nashville. I got to be there. So. I think, yeah, logically, I'll be around for Christmas. Okay, well, just keep us posted about what you do next, you know. Um, I definitely, you know, I had a rough weekend, so I definitely got a lot of laughs and uh, appreciation out of this this uh, major sh- shenanigans. Oh, I don't know, just I fell on I... my chin. Uh-oh. It's icy up here. It's okay, I lived. But, you know, it was uh, definitely definitely scrolling through Facebook this this morning and or last night and seeing all that was, uh, you know, I'm just I'm happy to see somebody's out there fighting the meme wars when I'm not always capable of it. So someone has to. Yeah. You're fighting the wars for the people. I'm sorry. Sorry about your chin. It's okay. (laughs) Thank you, though. I much appreciate it. I appreciate you calling in. We got some firsthand scoop on this national story. And we're going to have you in, man. I keep saying that. I mean it, though. Yeah, sure. When you come back to town, we'll do this. It'll be great. Yeah, you, you got you guys are um, uh, like my go-to place for just chitting and chatting. There's no pressure here. Uh, none, none of this Rolling Stone business. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> were they really? We were... just keep it real. Yeah, we keep it real here. This was the special dessert part of the episode. We're gonna we're gonna hang up now. We got to do a few plugs for some various okay 
various things. But yep. good to good to talk to you. I hope everything goes well on your journeys back. Yeah. Glad you made uh, bail. Sounds- take it easy, Rob. All right, take take it easy, boy. Bye. Yeah, I gotta figure out Well, I'm curious what he would want to if he wanted to come in <laughs> studio, what would he want to talk about? I don't know, probably whatever he wants. But um it's always a good time. I want a topic identified. You want to do conspiracy? You, you want do- a syllabus? Yeah. I want a whole agenda. <laughs> I mean, we, we can do um, like 10-minute rounds of like conspiracy theories. We could. He- you like planning. Oh, I love planning. It's yeah. the funnest thing in the world. Evan loves plans. I love winging it. It's all about structure. Speaking of winging it, what are we doing this week? All right. I have two plugs. Okay. Um, so the first, I alluded to it earlier, this Thursday night. If you want to get a drink with me, trying to get Lauren to come, looking over at Herb, seeing what Herb's doing on Thursday night. So DSA is having a Bernie holiday party. It's at, oh God, just listed the address, Dos Diablos. Um, It's uh, 50 Gangsborough Street in Boston. I'm going to be there probably... Unfortunately, from like 5.30 to 11, you don't have to stay that long. I might show up around 8.30. There we go. That's a good time. Yeah. I have to go because I have to support support the team. But we'll be doing a fundraiser for Bernie Sanders. There's going to be some newly elected politicians swinging by, making speeches. It's also a victory lap for our electoral team and all the hard work that we uh, put in for this uh, year already planning for next so if you want to come by grab a drink with boston dsa thursday night i'll be there basically for six or seven hours everyone's gonna be there all the cool kids including you oh, of course cool kids plus me 50 gangsborough street uh dos diablos in boston all right that's number one you want me to do my second one or do you want to plug go? number two all right plug number two so that's the fun stuff but this saturday there's actually a very important event and there's going to be a rally in March against the Suffolk Downs uh, development. So we're going to have somebody uh, probably call in from City Life to speak more about this. All you need to know, there's a Texas billionaire who's trying to create what will essentially be another whole neighborhood within Boston and East Boston. Um, So this community group, they fought against having the casino in Suffolk Downs. They won. They fought against Amazon building their second headquarters here. They won. Now this Texas billionaire is trying to basically create his own like mini city. It's gonna be forty thousand like units homes. This is the largest development um, since the entire reconstruction of uh, the seaport area. And so, if you want to make sure that this whole new neighborhood of Boston is actually affordable, it actually doesn't create even more displacement. It's gonna have ripple effects in, t- in the entire community. There's a massive rally, twelve p.m meeting at Liberty Plaza Park. Just go on Facebook, type in Rally in March, Suffolk Downs. Um, I will be there. DSA will be there. Every city life will be there. Um, right to the city will be there. Dorchester Office Sale will be there. Every community group in Boston is going to be, uh, be at this event. So if you want to uh, join in solidarity and actually fight, we need, I would love to see a 1,000 people show up to really demonstrate just the amount that we're not going to let another whole neighborhood be created solely for luxury development hedge fund Texas billionaires. I'm here for that. So that's at uh, noon that Saturday. I will be there. There's a DSA event. After that, I have to go to this is the biggest thing. 
to uh, show support that we want Suffolk Downs to be what we want it to be, not some random cowboy billionaire. Yeah, I hate cowboy billionaires. Look what they've done to this country. Oh, they're the worst type because they because yeah. they have the affect of like a middle class. Like, nah, man, I'm just like, I just me and my. You want to have a beer with me? Yeah, I'm gonna just buy like, out your entire neighborhood yeah. and turn into luxury condos for no reason. Yeah, well, but, for money. All right, Bernie Sanders Thursday <laughs> night drinking and partying Saturday. It's March Bernie Thursdays. Oh, that's a good line. I might yeah. steal that. Yeah. Okay, um, what do you got? Do I have plugs? What am I plugging her? Do you've got plugs? I don't know if I have plugs. Basically that, Bernie Thursdays, I'm pretty excited about. Um, WEMF Miss Episode, December 23rd. Special guests still secret, but confirmed. So stay tuned for that. And uh, I almost gave them away when you said it, so I'm glad you said secret. I yeah, no, it's important that. to keep the audience on their toes. There we go. What you got, Herb? I got a plug. What's going on? Tuesday nights. Over at Union Tavern, that is correct. We got an open mic going on. Come and join us if you want to play your song. If you want to listen to some songs, just come on over. There's cold beer and good music. Union Tavern, Tuesday nights, Charles Rivers open mic. Bam. <laughs> Union Tavern, formerly known as PAs, located right next to Gentrification Square, also known as Bow Market here in Somerville, Massachusetts. Come one, come all. Bring your guitar. Bring your wallet and uh let's have a good time that's all i got i don't know what else is going on i'm probably f i feel like i'm forgetting something no i gave the two most important events yeah for you <laughs> actually i'm not um because everyone's right now trying to t uh, squeeze in a lot of stuff um act on mass is having a fundraiser if you want to quickly look onto that on facebook on wednesday night i'm gonna try to swing by i have so much actually real work stuff which i don't like doing I really, I really just like my, my socialism and, and oh, that stuff. Oh, we got Call the Arts on Wednesday. If anyone's an artist that hates gentrification, they can come by the secret New Alliance location next to the Market Basket. Every and, group's uh, trying to do us. their event this week. I know. That's right before the holiday party, though. I might have to just get real strong and just... Keep pounding that cough syrup. Exactly. Keep pounding that cough syrup and that beer. Um, What else do I got? Uh, I think that's it for now. All right. All right, we'll be back next week. We got Lee Nave Jr. We're going to talk Austin Brighton. We're going to talk rent control. We're going to talk about the future. This has been Lauren Pispiza. And Devin George. And we're here with Renters Radio Boston. Have a good night, people. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> I like my bye-bye. Which I've stolen from a different podcast. We're still live. Everyone's still listening to Lauren. She's dying. I was holding that one in. <laughs> Whew. Well...